0: Tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're airing a best-of show, revisiting recent interviews with musicians and music makers with ties to the islands. 25 years ago, John Cruz released his debut album, Acoustic Soul. Back then, he was best known for being the brother of Ernie Cruz Jr. of the Ka'au Crater Boys, one of the most popular local music groups in the 1990s. But with the release of Acoustic Soul in 1996, John's career took off. He won two Nahoku Hanohano Awards, and the album went on to become one of the best-selling Hawaiian records of all time. Cruz commemorated the anniversary by performing a handful of concerts around the state earlier this year. He took time from rehearsals back in May to reminisce with The Conversation's Russell Subiano.
1: When you were writing and recording the songs, did you have any idea that it would make the impact that it did?
2: Well, actually, I had an idea because uh, before the songs were even recorded, I had been playing with my brother's band, Kyle Crater Boys. So when I got back from the mainland, I instantly jumped into their band, and they were one of the biggest bands at the time. So I had been singing a handful of these songs in concert in front of people who were interested in Hawaiian music and getting positive responses, especially with Island Style. That song was like an instant hit even before it was recorded, just from playing it live. So I knew the song was special already in people's minds and stuff in hearts, as long as I didn't screw it up when I recorded it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and I would know, already been playing those songs live, so I had a feeling that at least that the songs were connecting life fill up this
1: world till dawn. I know that you grew up on Oahu in a very musically inclined family. I think I remember reading in your liner notes that you had spent some time on the East Coast playing gigs in places like Martha's Vineyard, all the way on the other side of the country before coming home to record Acoustic Soul. What kind of influence do you think your exposure to other parts of the world and other types of music had on your own musical style?
2: Oh, huge. It had a huge... I mean, that's the reason why I went to the East Coast. My intention was heading to New York Mm -hmm. because that's where it all... All that music that I used to dream about playing and dream about seeing, you know, all these bands and stuff, I knew they were there. And so when I got there, I started playing in blues bands. I played in reggae bands. I played in any, any, any kind of bands that I could possibly get into. I would just play and try to immerse myself in the scene. I was just soaking it up, you know?
1: I noticed that some of your music has a pretty strong Motown influence as well. Was that some of the music you listened to growing up?
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, my dad was a country singer. So I grew up listening to the country and playing and singing country music. And my mom was into Motown and a lot of that R&B stuff. So uh, it was like second nature, you know, as far as those early influences, you know, there was always a, a record spinning at my house. You know, there's always an album or a single, you know, Al Green, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, all that stuff was constantly being spun at home, that and of course, you know, Casey some top 40 stuff. And in Hawaii, there wasn't that much of it being played live. I noticed that when I was growing up and started to get around and, and see live music, there wasn't much of an original music scene at all, really. Yeah. I mean, there was one club, Anna Bananas was the only club that really uh, encouraged people to play original music. So that was sort of a little mecca, you know, where I would go and just check out bands playing their own stuff. It was wild to me because a lot of the musicians who I knew who were working musicians all played in cover bands in Waikiki, you know, pretty much. Either covering top 40 stuff or playing Hawaiian music. And as much as I loved that, I wanted something a little more. And that's what led me to get as far away from this place as I could possibly get.
1: How was your musical style received by your family when the Acoustic Soul came out and when they were able to kind of hear how unique your sound was.
2: Well, yeah, because, you know, um, I was up there for about 13 years, but I'd always come home, you know, when I come home, we'd always be jamming, sit around jamming or some family party or something like that. And so it was already um, coming out. And uh, yeah, they totally supported it. I remember when Charday's album, that first song, Smooth Operator, came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a call from my sister, Desiree, when I was up there in, in college. She was like, oh, my God, John, there's somebody on the radio that stole your sound. And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, that smooth operator song. It sounds like your kind of style, you know. Yeah. And, and, and remember when that came out, there was nothing like it on the radio. right? But it was that, you know, sort of influence of a soul, a little Caribbean kind of style island, you know, Caribbean style uh, rhythms and pop and so that was a little bright spot of the whole top 40 thing. I said, Oh wow, maybe there's a chance at something.
1: Probably the most beloved song on your album, Acoustic Soul, certainly your most streamed song, is Island Style. For a song that describes what it's like to live in Hawaii, you could have sung about going to the beach or hanging out with friends or going to Luau's, but you included lines about helping your grandma clean her yard.
3: Go grandma's house on
1: What led you to write those lyrics?
2: Well, I started writing it when I was still living in New York, just missing home, you know, and my brother Ernie used to send me all the latest music, you know, when a Hawaii band would come out with something, he would send me, you know, a cassette tape or something of it, you know, it was cassettes back then. And, uh, you know, I would be anticipating this because he would be saying like, oh, you remember so-and-so, guys? Yeah, what, he just came out with a new album, it's pretty good, blah, 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 he's getting played on the radio send me it and so I'd be anticipating it and um yeah I always kind of would be not disappointed but in one sense it will it sort of uh um supported my reason for leaving in the first place Mm -hmm. in that the music didn't seem like there was anything new being injected into the music in Hawaii except the Hawaiian stuff you know reggae was a huge influence so the song was uh you know, I was when, when thinking about okay, what what you know, what do I really miss about Hawaii? And at the same time, what was I expecting to hear? You know, when he sends me something, and so that first verse, "Mama's in the kitchen and on the island, do it island style," came right out, and I just had that for a little while. Now, when I came home, finished the song, it was just just another thing, you know, just thinking about wow, what you know, what what in particular is for me do I, is hawaii what what does hawaii mean and you know when you're living on the east coast people go, you're from hawaii what are you doing here it's so beautiful there don't you miss it don't you miss the beaches and uh, kind of you know what i mean but i we've had that all our lives you know what i mean so it's not like we know it's always going to be here but really what i you know as far as the grandma verse was just something that was very particular to me that just said hawaii at least my hawaii you know we all have our own experiences but um that was a classic, my mom, because a few periods of my young childhood we lived with my grandma, my mom and my brothers and sisters, you know, in transition periods and stuff. So it's always like, hey, go help your grandma clean yard. You know, instead of watching cartoons Saturday morning, you know, whatever. It's like, hey, get outside, go help grandma clean yard. So that that's just a that's where that came from.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's my favorite line just because I had the same experience spending time with my grandma in her yard. One of the other songs on Acoustic Soul, Kawaile hua a'ala kahunua, is your only Hawaiian language song on the album.
2: Hua alaka
1: hua. Can you talk about why you decided to record and include that specific song?
2: You know, growing up, I never really sang that much as kids. We never sang that much Hawaiian music. Like I have friends who are Hawaiian who, you know, local kids who, that's all they listened to was, you know, KCCN. I mean, you went to their house, that's all you ever heard was Hawaiian music, you know? Any records that were on were just Hawaiian music. And our house wasn't like that. You know, I wanted to include a a song that was Hawaiian language song. And in thinking about what song I could record, I was like, hmm, I think I know all the words to that one. (laughs) Besides that, I remember when Frank Hewitt, who wrote the song, he received the Nahoko Hanohano for Song of the Year for that song. And it was on the Casimero Brothers' first album, you know, when they left them, the Sunday Manoa, and did their first album as a group. Mm-hmm. I just remember him going up and receiving the Hoko Award, you know, for Song of the Year, because it goes to the writer, the Song of the Year Award. It was just a cool moment for me to look back on because, you know, of course, we're musicians, so we're always watching the Hoku Awards, you know, since they first started, kind of anticipating, you know, who's going to win, whatnot. And uh, I just remember it was a beautiful moment, and I just loved his energy whenever I'd see anything about it. So that was a made the song even more uh, special for me to be able to sing that song.
1: It's a great song, and you do such a great rendition of it. It's one of my favorite tracks on the album. Your manager, Mark Tyrone has said that Acoustic Soul is a statement of your core values and a quest to inspire Hawaiians and people of Hawaii to see what we can achieve when we commit to being true to ourselves and not settling for simply good enough. Has the message you set out to share when you first recorded Acoustic Soul, is it still the same or has it evolved over time?
2: It's mostly kind of stayed the same. You know, I, uh, fortunately, you know, music is a big part of my life, and I'm I'm able to do it in a way that connects with people. And I've found that whenever I'm playing music, you know, that I'm playing for other reasons or whatever, you know, it never connects as much as I wanted to. But when I'm playing stuff that connects with me, it seems to connect with people. So, just trying to be, uh, just trying to be honest, no matter what it is, whether it's a song I wrote or a song that someone else wrote and sang. I just try to get into the song and come at it from me. That seems to have uh, that seems to be the most um, honest way of doing it, you know. And I think people can uh, sense the sincerity of someone doing their thing, you know. So it's I don't know, it's been working so far. So.
1: Thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you.
0: That was a rebroadcast of an interview between famed local musician John Cruz and HPR's Russell Subiono, which originally aired on May 26, 2022. They were talking about the 25th anniversary of the release of Cruz's debut album, Acoustic Soul.
4: Support for H.P.R. comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. With a selection of gifts, publications, jewelry, and handcrafted goods at the Homa shop, all proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, open during museum hours.
1: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
4: Hi, I'm Father Francis
3: Tizo, author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about spiritual attainment and the dissolution of the material
4: body. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii you mm.
0: Ukulele virtuoso Taimani Gardner picked up her first ukulele at age five, started performing at age seven, and was discovered by Don Ho at 13. She's now in her 30s, has recorded five records since 2005, and has graced stages all over the world. Earlier this year, she released her newest album, Hava Iki, which is autobiographical and steeped in her Polynesian ancestry. Taimani recently sat down with the conversations Lillian Song in our studio to talk about the album. Here's a rebroadcast of that interview.
5: Hawai'i is very well known in all of Polynesia. It's where Polynesians originated from spiritually and also like where we come from. I really connect with like mythology, whether it's Greek mythology or, or any type of mythologies. So this one I really focused on like Polynesian mythology, things that I enjoy about that, but also like where do I come from? My mom, you know, she passed. 2018. So like, where do I come from? You know, so like my spiritual side. And that was kind of like the journey. It's about a girl named Maluhia. So this one actually has a full story, which I plan on creating on the stage. Who is she? And it's finding her inner strength and finding her own mana as she goes through Hawaii, this special island where the gods and goddesses live, and talking with them and trying to find herself. So that's, Kind of what this album is about, okay. but it's a, it's a spiritual place where Polynesians come from and go after they pass. So, Hawaii is about my Polynesian roots, was about my mom, she was a singer and she was in the Miss Universe pageant, she's so beautiful, she was a dancer, born and raised in Apia, Western Samoa, so my Samoan side is very musical, you know, they had a whole band there that would tour actually in Samoa called the Miller Band, so she was the singer. And so it was really more of like, how do I connect with my Polynesian side? my Samoan side and so I found what connected with me so you're going to hear some like Tahitian ukulele you're going to hear some Samoan lyrics you're going to hear some Hawaiian lyrics some Tahitian uh, some Samoan fire knife dancing so I just really put in the things that I connected with and wrote on top of that or I added those instruments later
6: so with this one you're saying it took four years to yes. complete and we're actually talking with you right now to help celebrate the happy news of your Woo. newest album how about iki? congratulations thank you what was your calendar <laughs> like
5: a lot has happened for touring this year Started off with Glastonbury in the UK, you know? It was just so funny, it's like COVID, nothing for two years, and then like, hey, do you wanna play at Glastonbury? I'm like, okay, let's just do it. Let's start off with a bang. So that was really fun, a great experience. Nice to be back in like the UK and see what's going on over there. That was the first tour. It was about two weeks. I did a little like mini tour in England. Mm-hmm. Came home and then I did a month long tour in California, West Coast. Had like a little break and then I did East Coast. How do you keep it up? Oh, so like I like to work out (laughs) naturally, it gives you a lot of energy. And then I have a manager, Mark Tyrone. I try and keep up with him because he's doing so many different, you know, ideas. And so he just keeps me going. You know, we work really well together. So he's just like this and then this. And then I've got a signature ukulele coming out before Christmas. So I'm just doing it all while I can, you know? It's just so crazy how you did nothing for a while. And so now you're just like, I want to do everything again. Today, you have
6: such a large presence online. I also saw your 2017 video from your concert at Millennium Stage, Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. Then you're performing at South by Southwest, mm-hmm. Bob Boylan mm-hmm. of Tiny Dust Concert fame. He yes. sees you there and then gives you this invite.
5: Yes, that was a huge deal too. Just because like, first Hawaii artist on NPR's Tiny Desk you know so I really wanted to make Hawaii proud and show what the ukulele can do. It was fun that was also in Washington DC and knowing all about the Tiny Desk it really was just an honor to be there and and I had a Hawaiian dancer come up during my set too so I just wanted to like really share the culture as much as I could. We've been talking about you but Mm. why
6: don't you Mm -hmm. show us that other side that you're so known for?
5: Okay, all right. Well, you guys, I brought my ukulele. <laughs> uh, this is actually my new baby. I got it a, a month ago, so I'm just breaking her in. And she sounds great. Okay, I'm going to play something maybe off of the the new album just to get us into the feel. This one's called Ladybird. I was walking in Ladybird Grove and this melody came upon me, so it's a fun little bossa nova thing, so I hope you guys enjoy a little snippet of Ladybird. <laughs> so just a little snippet. This <laughs> is a touch. Just
6: a touch. It's amazing what you can do the speeds you can accelerate to. Mm-hmm. Do you call that your pyrotechnic oh. technique? <laughs> what what do you call
5: that when you go just bam on straight like oh. 0 to 100? Um I like to call it shredding. My boyfriend calls it (laughs) jamming. He's a local guy.
6: So he's like, holy jam, yeah? Yes. And right now, so looking at your travel schedule, though, your world tour, it's still continuing. You kicked off back in
5: April in Waimea, Hawaii. Oh, yes. Kahilu. I did Kahilu Theater. That was, I guess, the warm-up to Glastonbury. So I did that. Mm. Uh, Yeah, it's just been a whirlwind, you know. It's been a lot. I'm doing one more tour next month. Um, This one's just a small one. It's all in California for two weeks. And then besides that, I'm going to be here in Hawaii. I'm going to start playing gigs. And I've got a new signature ukulele that's going to be coming out right before Christmas, too. So, How did that come about? Uh, My main baby is kamaka, kamaka, Hawaii. They just have always taken really good care of me, you know, since I was five. So when I'm performing or touring professionally, I play my kamakas. And then sometimes I play other ukuleles that are just really good luthiers. I found enya ukulele, and I just was very impressed by the inlays and the decorative stuff. Their ukuleles were really beautiful. They're a Chinese company. Their stuff is really beautiful. And so I just reached out and be like, hey, you know, would you be interested in doing something together? I'm trying to create an ukulele that's like affordable, Approachable for beginner ukulelas and then for more advanced players, something that's easy to travel with. Because like Kamaka, amazing, absolutely love. But like travel, I would not want to take this to the beach. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want something that's like a little bit more easier to take to the beach or to the forest. So I connected with Enya and we just created this me, like a great representation of me. It's a five string ukulele That's my main thing. And it's a thin body. So very easy to travel with. It has like an inlay of the moon. In white abalone so there's and it's black so it's, that's me i'm gothic polynesia that's what i call myself gothic polynesia so we created this affordable ukulele that i'm very excited to be sharing yeah christmas season
6: right and then mm. i think i saw a video online of you in front of the pyramids with you and your uk yes but there's no backstory there's was, there was no explanation <laughs> so i was like okay when and where were you by the pyramids
5: I was gigging in Israel, actually, and I, yep, I did. They asked me to play in Israel. It was beautiful, amazing, Um, and so I was, it was during my birthday as well, so I was like, I'm so close. I've always wanted to go to Egypt and check out the pyramids, and it was a two-hour flight, so I was like, I'm going, so I was able to uh, spend my, my, I think it was my 30th birthday there um, at the pyramids so playing in front of them was was really fun but like you said it's amazing what the ukulele can do and it's really provided this really special life of playing all over the world and like being inspired by other cultures which adds more to my music more depth final thoughts i just want to say thank you for supporting me through the years as well as hbr uh the conversation it's so nice to be able to get back into the saddle and support each other and support the art so um i hope you guys enjoy the new album it really is very very special and close to my heart and i hope you feel groovy when you listen to it so thank you very much and it was a pleasure being here again
0: that was an interview between ukulele virtuoso Taimani Gardner and HPR's Lillian Song, which originally aired on October 11th, 2022. Taimani's new album, Hava Iki, is out now, and here she is with the song, Bora Bora Sunset.
4: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. This week on Science
7: Friday, looking back 75 years to the invention of the transistor.
4: In December 1947, there was exactly one transistor. There are now something like 20 billion, trillion. Why the transistor may be the most important
7: invention of the 20th century. It's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
4: Beginning this afternoon at one. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org.
0: It wasn't long after Professor Keola Donahy took over the University of Hawaii at Maui's Institute of Hawaiian Music that he started to dream big. He applied for a whopping $2.5 million grant from the U.S. Department of Education for a range of programs which included the opportunity to offer Hawaiian music instruction to students on Molokai. It's hard to get $2 million for anything, let alone for the arts, but Donaghy had an ace in his pocket. Stephen Fox, a cultural psychologist and UH musicologist, investigates and quantifies how traditional music benefits mental and spiritual well-being. With the money in hand and Fox's analytical support backing him, Donaghy set off to Molokai. But the program was only one semester in when a new variable was added to the equation, COVID-19. The pandemic put both Donahue's commitment and Fox's theory To the test. Here's a rebroadcast of the interview that HPR Savannah Harriman Pope did with Donahue and Fox about the experience.
3: a spirit boosting thing you know people recognized how isolated they are you know and i know from experience you know your your travel options and shipping options on Molokai are very limited you know there's times when the uh the young brother's vessel can't even come into the harbor so you wonder if you know you're gonna have bread to, to make your your children's sandwiches the next week the only planes that were operating at the time that we were conducting it were these single seat nine seat aircraft that would sometimes get canceled too. You know, I had it happen to me a couple of times. So, you know, the amount of isolation they already experienced was just exacerbated by COVID. You know, now you can't even leave the island. Even for us, when we started back traveling to Molokai, we had to get permission of our mayor. For every trip, we had to contact their office and get him to approve our traveling to the island you know it was stressful but the students made it clear we need this we need this contact we need to know that you know there are people outside of our island that care about what's going on with us and for me the same way i mean i think you know emotionally psychologically it helped me to to be making that trip and maintaining contact with the folks and appreciating what they were going through and how our program was contributing to their mental well-being so that was pretty joyful, but also difficult because we were using the Molokai Community Health Center, you know, in open lanai, we're all having to wear masks and everything. But spring of last year, 2021, we were able to bring them over two consecutive weekends in smaller groups and did all the recording that was necessary for them to complete their capstone project, which is, you know, recording a CD. Two months ago, you know, we went on Nahuku Hanohano award for it. It was really unexpected. You know, there were some really excellent recordings in that category, and we really didn't expect to win. And Stefan and I were in Portugal during that time, so I'm watching on my computer, and holy mackerel, we actually won.
8: And so we were presenting about that cohort, about that experience of COVID, and how with my research, my end of it. It wasn't like people got better psychologically, but most of the world, like 80% of the world, was showing symptoms of depression and or anxiety, and those symptoms were not showing up. They didn't really go up, but they also didn't crash out like everybody else did. So the implication is that maybe IHM and this, this traditional musical practice served as a resource, as a buffer to prevent the bad psychological effects.
9: When you think of everything that went right and all the ways people doubled down and recommitted to this process, when you think of, one, the difficulty in getting funding for the arts to begin with, and then the logistical hurdles to bringing these resources to rural communities, do you anticipate that we are overlooking true artistic talent in rural areas because we don't have the funding or the logistical resources to spotlight those talents?
8: Absolutely. I mean, in general, the multiple effects of arts are not something that culturally the U.S. is really valuing right now. So we have a lot of people who don't have the funding. They don't have the access to performance spaces or recording. And particularly in Hawaii, we have so many people who are geographically isolated. And so that's one of the things that we hope that we can do is to contribute to the knowledge base of yeah arts are not just like something superfluous that
3: we can do if we want and and leave out if we want to yeah uh, so I wrote the grant application and I think one of the things that really sold it you know to the funders at, at usdoe was a section that Stefan contributed that talked about you know he can quantify these benefits in a way that I don't know if anyone else has done before showing that particularly with, you know, indigenous cultures like this, that participation in performing arts actually has a proven benefit that he can quantify. If we had not had that element, I question whether or not we would have gotten the grant if we had just gone with the touchy feely qualitative kind of approach and not had the numbers to back it up, I think it would have been a harder sell to the, the funders.
9: Music plays a role in in many people's lives, whether or not they are professional musicians. Do you think that this buffering, the scaffolding that was put in place by the students' participation in music was particular to Hawaiian music, or would we have seen this with other types of music as well?
8: That's the question I've been asked a lot in the course of the doctorate and everything else. So. With traditional musics, there are a couple of elements that are not necessarily present in, let's say, classical music, not of your culture. So one aspect is connection with other people of your ethnic group, maybe. Another is your identity. So for, let's say, a person of Hawaiian ancestry who is playing Hawaiian music, well, the language may be an important part. The content shows a particular worldview. So these are all things that work together. So identity, cultural knowledge, and connectedness are the main factors that I identified doing my research as being particularly important in traditional arts. And they're a little bit, it's a little bit different if you're talking about other art forms. Somebody may have a strong identity as a musician, but it may not really deeply connect with who they are.
9: Can you describe kind of the the range of experiences or interests that students in this program have. What's your average student like?
3: There is no such thing. You know, say for, for Molokai, the youngest student we had was a homeschooled young lady who was only 17 at the time. The oldest person in the class was about 65 or 66 and everything in between. It's a challenge to try to make sure that everybody's getting something out of it you know what they need or want to get out of the program but also you know the students help each other out a lot.
9: For this most recent album students either created an original work or revisited an old song provided an interpretation of an old song that had to do with Molokai. Can you provide some examples of what your students did to bring their own vision to these songs?
3: Well one of the Different elements of the Molokai students is, most of them had had some significant Hawaiian language background, so they weren't starting off. Many of our students here, you know, they have to go into first-year Hawaiian and learn the fundamentals. There were some whose language was excellent. So that gave us a lot to work with. At least seven of the eight recordings we did were originals because the students had very strong ideas. So there was one young lady in the program who wanted to write a song for this area on the north shore of Moloka'i called Moomumi. And it's along the north shore. It's like one of the first real beaches on the north shore. Once, you know, you've come down from the cliff area. And, you know, we were struggling a little bit with it. And then I took her and I guided her on a dive into the newspapers from the 1800s. And we found a newspaper story. It was an account by a ship captain who was sailing past that area and describing the features of the beach and the rocks and everything that he was seeing as he drove past, drove, (laughs) as he sailed past Mo'umongi. And we found some terms that I don't usually don't hear, but I'm like, we need to bring these things into the song because a lot of times with Malay, you'll get, you know, particularly within an experienced composer, you'll get some kind of generic terms like for a beach, like kahakai, and we found a reference to uh, Kaiku Ono, which is, it's not quite a full bay, but just kind of this soft crescent shape of the beach. So we were able to bring that into the mele. So that's part of the process is, you know, you you really need, to, you know, if you're going to write a song about a place, you really need to know that place, you know, any kind of cultural significance, wind names, rain names, sea names, you know, all those things are elements that you want to include in your, your composition.
8: I think that's a really unique thing about Hawaiian music is the emphasis on people and places and that these really inform people's identity. And I think that's a big thing that makes Hawaiian music so psychologically potent is that it has these elements, this like this deep sense of culture and tradition Mm -hmm. and heritage and genealogy. You don't see that in very many musical systems.
3: You know, one young lady, she recorded a song that her sister wrote about, I think it was a great, great uncle whose parents living on Molokai, contracted Hansen's disease and were sent to Papa. But at the time, they would not allow children there. So he ended up being sent to Honolulu to be raised by, I forget if it was another family member or somebody who wasn't even family. And it wasn't until he was old enough to go back that he chose to live in Kalaupapa to take care of his parents and the other patients there and eventually contracted Hansen's himself and died of it. So she didn't find out the backstory until the night that we were performing, you know, doing the CD release. And she's singing the song beautifully with just waterfalls coming out of her eyes, you know, really realizing the depth and the full story behind what she sang. Seeing the students connect with where they live in that way and with ancestors, and I could go on and on. Every song has a story behind it like that. I get really, you know, misty when I I start thinking about it. I was able to be part of that process.
8: That's such an example about talent that we're missing out on. You know, Molokai doesn't have the tourist flow, and Mm -hmm. that's probably a good thing, but it means that those people yeah. Are not really going to be heard unless something like this is
7: done.
3: <laughs>
0: That was a rebroadcast of an interview between HBR's Savannah Harriman-Pote, Stefan Fox, and Keola Donaghy. It originally aired on September 9th of this year. They were talking about the award-winning album produced with students on Molokai during the pandemic.
1: (laughs) ¶¶ (tries) He was <tries> he he
4: Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery, open daily in Kahala Mall. Featuring Oahu-based artist Suzanne Jenerich 10 to 1 December 18th. Children's art coloring books, prints, tea towels, and nesting dolls available.
8: On the next fresh air, the Hollywood blacklist and the making of the classic Western High Noon. Its screenwriter was blacklisted in the early 50s during the period of anti-communist hysteria. He wrote High Noon as a parable about the blacklist. We'll hear from Glenn Frankel, author of the book High Noon. This year is the film's 70th anniversary. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at three, following Science Friday.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: Veteran's Day this year brought a story of gratitude from another time and place. It was a heartfelt gesture from Breuer, France. Guillaume Mamon is the Honorary French consul General in the islands. He says he was pleasantly surprised to learn of a song called Aloha. It was created by residents of a retirement home and elementary school students. It was a way to thank the Hawaii soldiers of the highly decorated 442nd for their heroic efforts to liberate their town during World War II. They asked that he share the story and the music with us here in Hawaii. Here's a rebroadcast of that
7: interview. In 1944, October 18 and 1944, the 10442 from Hawaii came and rescued a small little village in France called Bruyère. And the people of Bruyère are so grateful about their liberation. So even 77 years later, they continue to show their gratitude and they made a video that was beautiful that I received from one of the person that is part of that village. So it's a song to continue to thank the veterans uh, of what they did, and the song is their message of Aloha, back to the 10442. And what I love about it is it came from people from four generations. You have all the people that were alive in 1944, they were part of the people that were rescued, but their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren are part of these videos. So if you hear the video, you hear the first singer is an older lady and then it goes younger and younger and involves all the people of the village. And it's so beautiful because we want to make sure that the legacy of the 10442 continues for many generations. It's not just to thank them for one generation, but continues that gratitude that the people of France have for the entire U.S. Army, but specifically there in Briere, they love to continue to honor the 10442.
0: Yeah, because you have to keep the stories alive
7: exactly exactly otherwise if it disappears we'll never know what happened and the sacrifice that the hundred four four two did is is tremendous and we see how many casualties they had the hundred battalion was called the purple heart battalion because of the number of deaths and wounded that they had during campaign in Italy and in France well describe your reaction when you heard the song I have to say it was very emotional uh, tears in my eyes because it was, once again, the fact that there were so many people involved. Those are small villages. Bruyere is actually sister city with Honolulu, but Bruyere only has 3,000 people, so it's really a small little village. It had a tremendous significance in terms of war strategy. It was surrounded by four hills that the German had a very strong position, and that's the reason why it was a turning point in the Second World War. But it's actually a very small village. The mayor of Honolulu in 1961, it was Mayor Neil Blaisdell, decided to go to Bruyère and make Bruyère a sister city with Honolulu. So when I heard that the video, the fact that they continue to honor the 10442 and it hasn't stopped and they continue to send their message of aloha, and that's what the song is all about, is to tell them what they think aloha means and how they can give it back.
0: Okay, well, let's share some of that song with our listeners.
9: de <laughs>
8: She
7: So translate for us. Yes, yes, it's beautiful. So they say those little soldiers came and rescued us, and we want to make sure that we continue to thank them. L'histoire est gravée dans nos terres means their story or or history is engraved in our ground, and we want to make sure that we continue to perpetuate this history. So that's some of the lyrics that they're talking about, and they talk about their collier de fleurs, means their lays, that they want to give back, to those people and they wish they can have the soldiers of the 1044 to come back so they can give them their lays, their version of a lay.
0: Ah, so their flower lay. Exactly, flower (laughs) lay, exactly. And so this was put together by members of this town. It involved the retirement community and the young children
7: there. Exactly, and that's what I love about it because it involved the entire community. I saw some of the people were over 90 years old and then we see in the video some five-year-old children singing. So it really involved the entire community there's a gentleman after that who comes with his guitar and sings in English also to bring that sister city relationship it's very emotional and I love listening to that song and yeah, like very- I said I, I don't tear easily but the tears in my eyes when I heard that yeah. because uh, to continue this gratitude you know it's so important I always say that you know my mother was alive in 1944 so when the American army came it means a lot to her but she told us the story so it means a lot to me as well and I tell the story to my children it means a lot to them as well so it's it's important that we continue to show our love for our rescuers. And I always say that this is an important thing that we continue saying. And so specifically in that region of France.
0: And we should mention that you did go back to that town for a big anniversary.
7: Yes. Yes, thank you. So in 2019, that was the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Bruyère and Bifontaine. So on October 18 and 19, 2019, we went to Brouillère. we were invited by the Mayor, Mayor Yves Bonjean, uh, Mayor Caldwell came, as well as a delegation from the city. U.S. Representative Case came as well. And we had a pretty big delegation of people from Hawaii. Sons and daughters of the 10442 came as well. So we had a—it was a big ceremony. There were hundreds of people coming. We had someone who came and danced for us. So there was a hula presentation in the area where the 10442 fought in that uh, those fields, in those mountains. So. Once again, there was a powerful moment that we had, and that's when we had people meeting other people. I want to talk about the rescue of the Lost Battalion. There was a horrible battle. a Texas Battalion was stuck basically on the hills. And there were, at the time, uh, 275, but they rescued about 215, and they sent the 104 to. It was tired. They already had many, many battles, and there were actually more casualties. To save 115 of those Texas soldiers, they had 800 casualties. So it means they were killed in action, missing in action, and wounded in action. So, so there they- were more people that perished and were wounded than they actually rescued. So when those two families met during that anniversary 75 years ago, I have a good friend of mine, Brian Kitashima. His father fought in that battle, and he came with his two sisters, and they met the uh, children of the people that they rescued. So that was a powerful and emotional moment. Everybody was hugging. And those people that uh, they rescued from Texas said, you know, we wouldn't be alive if your father didn't have the bravery to come and rescue uh, our father.
0: So it's just so important to remember the sacrifices to think about our allies and what those brave young men did—incredible time.
7: Especially when you know, so the 10442 was pretty much entirely composed of Nisei soldiers, second-generation Japanese soldiers. Their parents, their uncles, and aunties were in internment camps, and they volunteered to fight in—you know—for the U.S. Army. They all volunteered. Were sent to France, a place they most of them have never been before. I've never heard before, and they show so much bravery. The 10442 is the most decorated unit in the history of American warfare for its size and length of service. So they showed more loyalty and devotion to America than anybody else. And it was important when I talked to them. First of all, they don't like to talk too much about the war. And I never, Mm -hmm, uh, out of respect, I never, um, uh, you know, asked too many questions. But when they open up and they talk to us about it, they said it was so important to them, their family themselves was telling them, um, you know, don't dishonor the family. Death before dishonor. So fight as a brave man. And and they did. They really did. So that's why it's important to us.
0: Well, we thank you for sharing the story so we can bring that spirit of that town and share it across the ocean uh, here in the Pacific. And that's
7: exactly what the the people from this village that sent me the video wanted to make sure that I distribute it to all the people here in uh, Hawaii so they can share their love for Hawaii.
0: Well, mahalo and merci. (laughs) Merci. (laughs) That was a rebroadcast of an interview we did with Honorary French Council General Guillaume Maman. It originally aired last month to honor our veterans. Maman shared the story of a song composed by the residents of Brewer, which has a sister city relationship with Honolulu. Check out the links to the video of the song performed by residents of the village on the conversation page of our website. It is charming. ville et surtout Mais tout ce malheur a quel prix? Si ce n'est le souvenir grand bruit. Well that wraps it up for us today. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman Pope, Russell Subbiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backer Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. You can find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.